Welcome to the RCAP USA Roundup, a podcast where we have real conversations affecting both cattle producers and beef consumers. We're your hosts, Jaden Moreland and Karina Jones. With that, let's get to today's episode. This episode is sponsored by Grossenberg Implement Incorporated. Founded in 1937, the Grossenberg family works to successfully maintain the core values of their generational business while progressing in the industry's innovations with an emphasis on customer services and community patronage four generations later. Visit their website, grossenberg.com, or visit one of their nine locations across Wyoming, South Dakota, and Nebraska. You also can find them on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Thank you, Grossenberg Implement, for being a 2022 convention sponsor, and thank you for your support of RCAF USA. The dairy industry has long been a staple of American diets in rural America. But much like their beef counterparts, the dairy industry we once knew is quickly disappearing. Today we visit with Deborah Mills of National Dairy Producers Organization and discuss consolidation, cattle industry policies, and checkoff programs. Welcome back everyone to the RCAF USA Roundup. We took a little hiatus there and we are so happy to be back. We have a great episode laid out for y'all today. Deborah with National Dairy Producers Organization, welcome on. It is a pleasure to have you on, and I am excited to learn your perspectives and just learn a little more about the dairy industry in general. So why don't we just start with a quick intro. Tell us about yourself, where you're from, your operation, and just your life as a dairy farmer. Well, thank you, and it's great to be here with you. Um, Well, I became a dairy farmer when I married my husband, Kent, in 1989. And we started buying our own dairy cows that same year. So we farmed with Kent's parents for 19 years, building our dairy herd. And then in 2008, we purchased our own dairy farm and expanded to 270 cows. We have three daughters, two are married, and we have a wedding coming up in the fall. And we have three grandchildren and expecting another one next month. So we're super blessed and very excited. I'm in Southeast Minnesota, uh, Lake City. Our, our dairy is just a little bit north of Lake City. I was born and raised in Florida, and so I met my husband in college, and being the romantic guy that he is, said it was easier to move me than the dairy cows. <laughs> so, oh, well, that know, is, that's a big now. change. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It took a while to learn how to dress, I have to admit, uh, but uh, I've got it figured out and dialed in, and so we're good. And it is a beautiful area. I really enjoy living here. And um, but I do miss the South. I I do miss the South. <laughs> so um, were your family like were your family members or anything involved in any kind of agriculture, or is agriculture totally kind of new to you? I the closest thing that my family came to agriculture was my great grandfather was a butcher. That was his career. Um, so. Um, and then at one point in for a few years, they in the 1950s, they owned a orange grove. But other than that, no. Very not, interesting. Not so, so you got the shock of Minnesota and then the shock of agriculture all at the same time. <laughs> well, you know, I went to college for agriculture. It was it was a career choice for me. I always knew that that's what I wanted to be involved in. I just didn't really, you know. At the time, didn't know in what capacity, but um, Very so here cool. we are, yeah. Very cool. So what kind of kicked this podcast in motion was your organization joined alongside RCAP in this MCOOL coalition 
which we'll go back to that later, but just kind of give us an overview of the National Dairy Producer Organization and your position within that organization. Well, NDPO's number one priority is dairy producer profitability for sustainability. So we're working to empower dairy producers to work with their hired cooperative management to balance the uh, marketplace demand with a profitable price for the benefit of the member owner. And um, yeah, NDPO is excited um, to support the work of RCAF is doing with the American Beef Labeling Act, and then also working with the Organization for Competitive Markets on checkoff reform. I serve on the NDPO Board of Directors. I was three years as secretary, and then last week I was elected chairwoman. Excellent. Well, we, you know, we're always excited to broaden our foundation of, of coalition strength and having the dairy industry alongside to work on cattle industry issues and just even issues that affect agriculture in general is really important to us at RCAF. So we appreciate the work that you guys do from, from your organization as well. And like the beef industry, the dairy industry has seen a lot of changes. And so talk to us about the changes you and your husband have seen in the dairy industry since you came to Minnesota and, and embarked on this adventure. Well, we've witnessed the, the loss of tens of thousands of family farms and ranches, and our independent milk producing infrastructure has given way to the rise of concentrated corporate milk making enterprises. And the milk processing infrastructure is increasingly becoming vertically integrated by way of farm credit system and government regulations. So NDPO is concerned about forced compliance for market access using the National Dairy FARM program, the RFID tagging, climate change policies, such as mandating manure digesters. Um, the most consistent issue is basic supply and demand economics. The milk supply in excess of profitable marketplace demand is plaguing the family dairy farmer with unprofitable milk prices and financial destruction. So in reality though, that no milk buyer, including the dairy farmer owned cooperatives is gonna pay more for it than it has to in order to get the milk that it needs. So when supply exceeds profitable marketplace demand, the milk prices will generally be less than it costs to make the milk. That's interesting. Let's continue down that line of, of issue there. Um, because a lot of the issues that you face on your dairy cattle side are parallel to what we see on the beef cattle side. One of those being that consolidation of the dairy industry. So talk to us about what consolidation in your industry has done to the family dairy farmer. Well, the consolidation of poultry, pork, beef, and now dairy has been going on for decades. And this is being accomplished through corporatocracy. Currently, the world is in this rapid push towards corporatocracy, a system and a society that's governed and controlled by corporations. And the traditional family farm structure that was a localized sustainable system for the community and region. Um, but the economies of scale model of agricultural production is what has driven out the family farm. So in addition, we have all the mergers of the corporate food companies 
to fewer than a handful of companies that process and manufacture the food in the grocery stores, also has contributed to the loss of family farmers, rural communities, and independent businesses. We all have paid a high price for this current nationalized corporate food system. The corporate food system has consolidated um, beef, pork, and poultry production and processing. Dairy processors are in the last stages of consolidating dairy producers through the implementation of the modernizing the U.S. milk pricing proposal from the International Dairy Foods Association by contracting directly with producers and bypassing the cooperatives. So from an independent family farm system to a corporately owned integrated system where family farmers are merely a serf for the corporation, this is not the system of food production we should want. So what reforms does your industry need to slow that concentration and give the family dairy a chance at survival? Well, the National Dairy Producers Organization supports an overhaul of the milk price discovery to better reflect the true value of milk on the farm. The CME has not been a fair system for producers, while processors and retailers, they've been allowed to earn substantial profits in stark contrast to the record losses recorded by most dairy producers. NDP also supports returning to the calculating of the class one mover, which uses the higher of the advanced class three or four price calculated by the product price formulas. So history has clearly and repeatedly demonstrated that there's never been market stability for producers in the dairy industry, nor will producers ever reach or maintain producer profitability until a management, uh, supply management plan is in place. Um, several local and national cooperatives have implemented based um, programs to manage their members' milk production with marketplace demand. And um, the other issue is also NDPO is also working on correcting deceptive milk importing practices as they've created an oversupply by displacing U.S. produced milk with imports which has resulted in the dramatically negative impact on the value of all the domestic milk produced in the US. So if I'm understanding you correctly, are you saying that there is a disconnect between the wholesale milk price and the retail milk or dairy product price that the consumers are paying? Yes. And this, the CME in the middle is no, no longer and probably never has been for dairy a risk management tool. Correct. It's, it's supposed to actually be a price discovery tool. And what's interesting is that very, I, don't know, I want to say it's one, less than 1% of the milk is actually traded, that's, that's sold, is even traded on the CME. So right. to, to call it a price discovery, um, the source of our price discovery is really kind of silly. Paper traders have become the the only benefactors of the CME, correct? 100%. What frustrates me a lot of, about the CME is how they can manipulate the prices and how speculators can come in and 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 drop your market or or increase your market, but usually it's drop your market. Um, because those milk buyers are trying to buy that milk for as, as little as possible. 
And, um, and so if that's our price discovery mechanism, well, there you go. A little bit of room for... Uh, right. <laughs> anyway, go ahead. No. <laughs> No, I completely agree. I, I completely agree with you. And it's the exact same thing we face on the beef cattle side. And so it's just interesting to help broaden that context that um, beef, it's not happening just in the beef sector. This is happening more broadly. And you're giving a voice to the dairy industry concerning these same issues. And so um, I, I hear you completely. And I think uh, those above us that make the rules and regulate the rules need to hear both of our sides because we're it's same song different verse absolutely yeah so deborah earlier on you made a quick mention about another issue that ndpo is you know got on their radar focusing on and that's the rfid issue that issue gained some new wheels under it this week with the office of management and budget giving a green light for uh, the USDA to go on with an RFID mandate rulemaking. How is the dairy industry going to be affected if there was an RFID mandate? How are they going to respond to this rulemaking? Well, the discussion that NDPO is having about the RFID tagging is that we're, that they're going to it's eventually going to be used as a way to possibly restrict market access. Do you see a mandate on RFID being a way that your milk buyers can have more information about your side of the market and giving them even more leverage in the marketplace? Yeah. And that's how we feel about on the beef cattle side. Is it is completely a leverage mechanism for our packing sector that controls 85% of the beef supply. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, that is definitely a concern. So switching gears, let's talk about the checkoff situation because the dairy industry is super unique. I think they are the only industry that pays two checkoff systems the dairy checkoff, and the beef checkoff. So tell us about the issues you see with the dairy and beef checkoffs that really frustrate you. Okay, I have a story from my friend, Jonathan Buttram, and he's the president of the Alabama Contract Poultry Growers Association. And he's also a board member of the Organization for Competitive Markets. And he says that this is the golden age of poultry. Chicken consumption has hit an all-time high, outpacing beef, pork, and turkey. According to USDA estimates, beef was being consumed at 84 pounds per person per year in 1985, the year that the beef checkoff began. Then in, 19, in, in 2022, that number dropped to 58 pounds per person. Chicken consumption, on the other hand, is up from 40 pounds in 1970 to 100.6 pounds per person per year in 2022 all without the help of any checkoff program. Chicken has overtaken the consumption of beef for many reasons, dietary trends, price, availability, um, many factors play into that role. But it's also noteworthy and worth further discussion, the consumption levels of milk, beef, and pork have fallen since the checkoff programs were each instituted. So all while 
The consumption of chicken, which has no promotional program of any kind, has continued to climb. So I think Mr. Buttram's story speaks volumes about what frustrates producers who are paid into these checkoff programs. Our investments did not increase the demand for beef or milk. The gross misappropriation of funds is unconscionable. And the ratio for return on investment dollars that producers have spent is underwater. The system has to change. Accountability and transparency are key to righting the wrongs in this current USDA program. And, and NDPO is working in partnership with RCAP and the Organization for Competitive Markets to right these wrongs. So we're just going to say it louder for the people in the back. Since the checkoffs were made mandatory, you're telling me that the consumption, the hard number, the consumption of pounds of uh, beef, pork, and dairy products has declined per, per capita since the checkoffs were made mandatory, yet chicken has increased and we know that it's completely overtaken pork and beef and chicken does not even have a checkoff. They do not. Wow. Unbelievable, isn't it? <laughs> I know, I know. And they wonder why we're upset or wanting to reform. It's crazy. Um, so then yeah. let's talk about reform. Is NDPO in support of reintroduction of the OFF Act, the Opportunities and Fairness in Farming Act, which would prohibit any lobbying organizations from receiving checkoff funds? Oh, yeah, very much so. Right. You know, you and I as producers that pay into those checkoffs, if the money is truly meant for research and development and marketing, why aren't we getting the money into the hands of researchers and marketers? Why do we have all these lobbying organizations serving as the middleman for handing out small amounts of money because they take their cream off the top, no pun intended, right, you know, right. from the beginning? What are your feelings on a voluntary checkoff act? I would, I think our, I think we would be okay with that. You know, it, it should be voluntary because that naturally holds the checkoff people, management people accountable because if they're not producing a good return on our investment dollars, we're going to, to vote with our investment dollars and say, we're going to defund you mm -hmm. or I'm going to defund you. <laughs> and, but if they're doing a good job, then I'm more than happy to, to, to invest in my future um, in my, you know, I'm more than willing to invest in my future of being able to sell my commodity or to sell my product, that the consumer is going to um, purchase my product. The last couple of years, we're seeing this, you know, this voice, I guess, undertone come out of the USDA in Washington, D.C. saying, we want to help strengthen local food systems. So what better way to help do that than to make the checkoff voluntary so that people like you and I can invest our marketing dollars in locally, you know, local food systems. Perhaps there's a dairy co-op in your area that, um, you know, sends milk to a cheese plant. Why not help them market the local cheese? 
you know, same thing with, with the beef side, we've got so many producers that are, um, you know, trying to get into the niche market of basically pasture to plate beef, let them keep their marketing dollars so that they can market their beef, how they need to in their area. Yeah, that is the one thing is that, you know, farmers, um, I know that we do sometimes we do some promotional things and we want to have like, say, you know, buy milk to be served at our, at our um, function. And um, our, we go to our checkoff board and ask them to fund that. And they tell us, no, <laughs> like, what do you mean? No, <laughs> but that's how it goes. Wow. That's, I know. Um, so de definitely an area of industry issues that we're both working on strong reforms. And I say strong reforms. We don't have time to tiptoe around this issue anymore and continue investing dollars that you and I cannot afford to into a marketing program that is failing the investors. Well, in many instances, it's not only failing the farmer investors, it's in some instances, these programs are actually working against the farmer. And, um, and I'm going to, and so that, that has to be addressed also. I'm glad you brought that up. Let's go down that rabbit hole a little bit, because I think you and I both have examples of how our checkoff money um, works against us. And I'll go ahead and start um, on the beef side, the beef checkoff, they, they market imported beef, the same as beef raised in Minnesota or Nebraska or, you know, domestically. And so I am throwing money into a pot that promotes Brazilian beef, the same as mine. Yeah, that, that, that should not be happening for sure. An emerging trend in your industry is the use of beef semen and embryos in your dairy cows. It, um, so just out of curiosity, is that something you guys do on your farm? Um, yes, we do use the, um, we do use some beef semen um, in our dairy cows. Most dairymen that I know started to use beef semen out of necessity to cut costs for the dairy. And it was a strategy promoted by the semen companies. So the logic behind this is that your heifers have your best genetics, so you breed them to the sex semen, and then these calves are your replacement stock. Since you don't need a replacement calf from your milk cow, you simply just need her to have a calf for her next lactation. The math just works. So the average price dairymen are paying for a dairy bull is $38, and beef is $10, and the average conception rate is two and a half breedings. So say you breed half of your 200 cows using beef semen, you would be saving $7,000 a year using a $10 bowl on the bottom 100 cows. And then, um, so, you know, that's kind of where, why it continues on. And the um, dairy beef growers, they like the strategy because the marketplace gave them a better price for the dairy beef crosses. Do you all on your operation grow out your own calves no we don't we 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 sell all our all our um, bull calves and beef crosses to a a grower would you agree that mandatory country of origin labeling on beef would put more money in that calf pipeline that could come back to you as a calf producer 
for those dairy beef cross cows, calves? Yes, yes. He, the grower does give us a little more money for that beef cross than he does for the, for the um, Holstein calves. But he also gives us a little more money for the, if, we, if, we, if he gets a, a brown Swiss or a Jersey. So even those colored dairy calves are bringing a premium over a Holstein. Mm-hmm. But just getting more money um, just down the pipeline into, you know, you at the beginning of being the calf where the calf is born would be helpful. Right. Well, yeah, so it would help anyone. <laughs> well, um, yeah, that's, that's yeah. great perspective. So I yeah. do want to go back to your mandatory country of origin labeling with the, like, in the frame of the dairy industry. Talk to us about Incool in the dairy, like with dairy products and all that kind of stuff. So from the perspective of the dairymen, we should not allow milk protein concentrates to be imported into the country, which is then used in the production of American cheese. So the loose or non-existent standards are providing a free pass for the country of origin labeling on all dairy products imported into the U.S. The continued um, importation of concentrated milk products and ingredients has displaced the use of U.S. domestic milk production by as much as 10%. NDPO is calling upon Congress to enact mandatory country of origin labeling policies for all dairy products being imported into the U.S., um, which identifies the product origin, classifies for import tariff purposes, milk products, milk components, um, other milk ingredients, including the milk protein concentrates, casein, caseinite starters, and the mixed milk products. So I have another question relating to dairy products. So there's a lot of alternatives that are gaining popularity in the grocery store. So what effect has that has the almond milk, the oat milk, cashew milk. I mean, I could go on and on, it seems like, of all these different alternatives. How have those products affected the dairy industry as a whole? I, for a short time, you know, they gained in popularity. And, but I did read this morning that the, um, that the, that the sales aren't, aren't as, as good as they were. And even the Beyond Meat product is declining in sales at that company stock has decreased quite a bit. So I think while it, while it was um, kind of a new fad that people bought into, it, it, it's proving out to be a, a relatively short term. I mean, there are you know people that are dedicated that will continue to drink it, but I think that as far as it being a, um, something that's gonna grow and, and, and displace beef and, and dairy products, it's not gonna happen to the degree that maybe we feared at, at the beginning. Well, that's good. Something we really value on our podcast is having real conversations. And so if we don't get some reforms in place, what do you see as the future of the family dairy? What is the future of rural America as a whole? Well, um, a, a transformation from the corporatocracy system that's filled with bureaucracy and corruption would certainly favor family farmers and ranchers. Um, we are seeing investments in the redevelopment of the local food supply chain, which will provide family farmers with increased market access opportunities in their communities and regions. 
and the economic vitality of America's rural communities can be restored by filling the need for independent processors. I've been saying for a couple of years now, if there is ever an investment, a ground floor investment opportunity, in the, building an independent processing plant is it. I mean, you could, there's meat, dairy, wool, seed cleaning, there's stone mills for grain, small and mid-sized canneries are examples. Um, the rebuilding of the local supply chain and reconnecting independent producers with independent processors and independent retailers is what I'm very excited about. Um, the work that RCAF, National Dairy Producers Organization, and the Organization for Competitive Markets directly supports the American producers of food, fiber, and fuel. And I want to encourage everyone listening today to financially support these great organizations that are supporting you. Um, I have another question, and I don't know, we might not want to put this in there. Where, so, you know, a lot of beef producers, like, they change up their operations of, like, okay, they try and feed cattle for a while. If that doesn't work, they go back to cow-calf. Um, what alternatives, I guess, do dairy farmers have to kind of, like, try and bring more income to their operation, I guess? Like, what do you see as, you know, dairy farmers struggle? What do they add to their operation or, you know, how do they change it up? Okay, there's, there's two avenues that, um, the first avenue is to, you definitely don't want to increase your volume because that just adds to the milk that's on the marketplace that there isn't a home for already. So the two avenues that you can increase your, your, your um, margin on your farm is number one, with your milk production, high quality milk, low somatic cell count, higher components, which means high butter fat, and higher protein levels in your milk. The, the other way that you can increase your, um, your income on your farm, dairy farm, is to direct sell your meat to, your, to, to the people in your local community. And that's actually what we do. Um, we, we, um, are, we use our cull cows. So generally, we, very rarely do we sell a cull cow into the, into the supply chain. We usually butcher the, have them butchered and then we have um, retail customers that really like our, our beef because what we do with that dairy cow is we have the entire cow um, ground into hamburger. So people love the taste of our, our hamburger because they're getting all the premium cuts um, in that hamburger. And, and, uh, we def and people are definitely appreciating that. So those are the two areas. Increase the components and quality of your milk and direct sell the, um, your um, coal cows and, or if you raise steers. So, and then kind of expanding more on that direct sale. So, I mean, we have direct sale of beef. Are you seeing more dairy producers go to, you know, making their own cheese or, you know, kind of that kind of direct sale of dairy products, I guess? Are you seeing more of that? It's very difficult to direct sell, to make cheese and direct sell it because there's so many regulations on, on animal food. So you would have, it, and, and it's very expensive to build, like it's very expensive to build a, a, a processing plant that you could retail out your product. Um, there are people that do it on a small scale, but it's not a very common thing to do. So yeah, I don't know if that okay. answers your question. <laughs> 
No, it does. I was just curious. I've never really, um, yeah. I've never really thought about that until we just brought it up. But yeah. um, so like, interesting. In Minnesota, I think in Minnesota we have like a cottage food industry, which you can sell um, pickles and bread and cookies and you know things that that are non-animal based. They cannot have any cream. You can't sell pot cream pie or anything like that. But um, like, like chocolate pie, for example, but, um, so that, that, that is a, a way that a farmer could possibly increase their income is to go into the cottage food industry. And then there's things that, and they can just do that, you know, they get a license and they take the training and they can, and they produce the food in their own kitchen. But when it comes to the, the milk or meat, that is an entirely different regulation system mm -hmm. and, and much more complex. Okay. So as we wind down, we always ask our guests on our podcast, um, and we're going to have a follow-up question after this one this time. What is your favorite cut of beef and how do you like it prepared? Prime ribs, medium rare, the best. That sounds good. <laughs> okay. So then our follow-up question to cap off our conversation, what is your favorite dairy product? Oh, hands down cheese. <laughs> the varieties, the versatility of cheese, super hard to beat. Yes. Okay, well, Deborah, do you have anything else to add? Or Karina, do you have anything else to ask? No, I just, you know, want to thank you for the work that you're doing and the and it's it, with our calf and the podcast. And it's just been really fun to 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 uh, visit with you all today. Thank you, Deborah, for joining us today. We are so thankful for you and your organization's work in the American cattle and dairy industries, and we look forward to continuing our work together going forward. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in today. We encourage y'all to stay involved in the conversation and follow along at USA on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube, and Twitter. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the USA Roundup. To learn more about USA, visit our website, www.r-calfusa.com.